All right, what's up, Salt? Um, if you got a Bible, pull it out. We are at the very end of the Lord's Prayer. The very end of the Lord's Prayer. Matthew 6, find it. This is how it goes. Right after last week, Ryan talked about what it is to pray for, to God and say, God, would you give us today our daily bread? And then in the same breath, it continues. There's a comment that says, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then, so that's the prayer. And then at the very end, he kind of has this tag on the end and he says, he's kind of explaining this thing in there, right? Because it says, we, we pray, forgive us of our debts as we've forgiven our debtors. And then he gives us qualification. He says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. And so that's kind of how this, Teaching on prayer ends. It ends with this petition, this cry to God to forgive us our debts. And so my name is David. Um, and you're like, we know, we know. Um, and I'm, I'm named after, so my name is David Livingston, right? And that's actually the name of like a famous missionary. And so when, when I was born, my dad was like running through the hospital because he didn't really want like necessarily everyone to have that association right away. And so he's like, do you know David Livingston? Like, no, do you know David Livingston? No, and then I became a pastor, and so everyone in, in pastoring roles kind of makes the joke like that. But anyway, so my name's David Livingston, but I'm actually not named after the missionary, I'm named after King David, okay? King David in the Bible, that's where my name comes from, and I've always had this tension when I think about my name. Um, because David is upheld as a warrior, a worshiper, right? A man after God's own heart. Um, but there's also probably no one else in the story of the Bible whose failures are on display as clearly as David's. And actually the story of King David's failures, they actually like kind of unfold before us in 2 Samuel and like with more clarity than we would want, right? Maybe you can know the story, maybe you don't know the story, but basically there's this spring where the kings are supposed to go to war and David is the king and so he's supposed to be leading his troops into battle, but he's not doing that. He kind of stays home and he's walking on his roof one day and he sees this woman on her roof and she's bathing, right? Now, David's a good king of Israel, so he should be like, I'm gonna go over here now and not look anymore over there, but he doesn't. He stays and he just kind of checks out this girl on this roof and she's beautiful and he keeps looking and he keeps looking and eventually he goes, man, I wonder who this is. I should find out who this is. And so he sends his servant and he says, hey, go find out who this woman is. So the servant goes and finds out and comes back and he's like, oh, this is Bathsheba. And, and you should actually know who this is because this is not just Bathsheba, but this is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. One of the kind of fierce warriors that's in your army that's actually fighting this war you're supposed to be fighting, but you're home. That's who this is. This is the wife of Uriah, your man. And so David says, well, you should go bring her to me. So because David's king, because he has power and status, he brings Bathsheba over to his palace. He sleeps with her and she gets pregnant. And this is really bad, right? This is really bad. This isn't just like he had an affair. This is like sexual assault, right? Someone else's wife, he uses his status to take something. And eventually word gets back to him that Bathsheba's pregnant. 
And David's kind of freaking out about this, right? Because if this gets out, this is gonna be a really big problem. This is a pretty serious thing for the king to do, right? To take someone else's wife, get this woman pregnant. So he goes, here's what, I, here's what I'll do. So he, he calls Uriah back from the front lines of battle and says, hey, Uriah, you should go and you should stay with your wife. You've been doing a great job. Get some rest with your wife, right? He's like, hopefully they'll sleep together and he'll think that this is actually his child. And he doesn't do that. He like sleeps on the porch, right? He's like, well, I'm not gonna go and like make love with my wife. Why? Because all my bros are like intense. They're not getting this. Like I'm not gonna get the special treatment. So he's like this high character guy. So he literally sleeps on his front porch that night and David's like, dang it. So the next night, David invites him over to his house. He's like, hey, drink some wine. Let's be merry. Get some drunk. And then sends him home. And he goes, oh, this will happen now. And he sleeps on his porch again. And then so David goes, what, am I, what are we going to do? How, do? how do I deal with this situation? So what he does is he tells his commanders and his officer, okay, Uriah is one of these, these mighty warriors. He's going to be the very front of the line. So actually you put him at the front of the lines and right as like the battle is the thickest and the most terrifying, right as it's most fierce, what I want you to do is I want you to pull everyone else back except him. So that the surrounding armies will crush him and kill him. And they do that. And word comes back that Uriah has died. And so David takes Bathsheba as his own wife and kind of assumes her into his family. Um, this is a pretty messed up story, right? Starts with apathy, then it's lust, then sexual assault, deceit, murder. And this is one of really the most spectacular stories of sin in the Bible. And yet, in the midst of all of this detail of David's sin, when the Bible looks back on the life of David, it says that this was a man after God's own heart. That's weird. And it's weird that you would take someone like this and then you would like name your son after him. Like, what a sweet legacy. Thanks, Dad. Like, I get to live up to this, you know? And so there's this question like, why? Why does the Bible talk about David this way? Why? There was something in David that was so after God's heart that when Samuel's choosing the king, he goes like, one son of Jesse's, one son of Jesse's, one son, and goes all the way down the line, eventually get to David, and God goes, this is the one. This is the one after my heart. Why did God choose David when it seems that everything about him is the exact opposite of God's heart? Why would you name someone after someone who has failed in such an extravagant way? This is why. It's because the single greatest thing that will define your life, today, tomorrow, your entire life, the single greatest thing that will define your life as a Christian is not whether you will sin or not, but it be, will be about how you respond when you do, okay? Single thing that will define and actually matter the rest of your life is not whether you will fail or not, but it will be about how you choose to, you, how you choose to respond to your failures when you do fail, because you will. And this is exactly how the Lord's Prayer ends. Right, the Lord's Prayer, this prayer of identity, right? It starts, God, our Father, and it, it beats that into our heads, right? Every single time you pray, start like this, God, our Father in heaven. It's this prayer of purpose, right? Holy be your name. 
You invite the glory of God to become the purpose of your life. It's this prayer of loyalty, submission, expectation, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done. It's this prayer of provision and, and kind of training our hearts to know what's truly satisfying. Well, it's, it's bread, but it's actually Jesus, the bread of life. And at the very end, it's a prayer of repentance. In the same breath that we ask God to supply our daily needs, our daily bread, we ask him for what we need more than anything, forgiveness. And so this is how we pray this part of the prayer. We say, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So just think about that for just a second, that phrase. Forgive us our debts, our sins. Forgive us as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now here's a question, okay? The longer that you follow Jesus, the more mature of a follower of Jesus that you become kind of over the years, do you think that you will end up praying this part, this section of the prayer, more or less as you become closer to God? Think about what you need to pray this part of the prayer. What do you need to actually pray this from your heart, right? Well, you need to be someone that has sin. Like you have debt that that actually needs forgiveness. You you actually need to be someone who faces serious temptation, right? You experience desire in your heart to break the commands of God. You actually need to be someone that needs someone else to come in and deliver them from what they can't seem to defeat themselves. Do you think that someone who is closer to God's heart prays this more or less than someone who's further away from God's heart? Who needs this prayer more? Who prays this more? Who kind of is like the ethos of this more? Well, there's actually this parable that Jesus tells his followers that answers this question exactly. And this is how the parable goes. Jesus is hanging out with a bunch of people and he says this, he goes, let me tell you a story. There's two people that go up to the temple to pray. And one of them is a Pharisee, right? And people are hearing this, they know what a Pharisee is. He's a good guy. He's a rule follower, this kind of high upstanding moral person and the other person that goes up to the temple is a tax collector. This is someone who is a thief, someone who's kind of known to hurt others, who oppresses his fellow Jewish people. And when the Pharisee goes up to the temple, he prays like this, God, thank you that I am not like other people. Thieves, evildoers, adulterers, or even thank you that I'm not like this tax collector, but actually I tithe, I I give money to the poor, and actually I do my very best to follow your laws. But then Jesus said that the tax collector stood at a distance. It says that he couldn't even lift his eyes to heaven, but he just stood at a distance with his head down and he just beat his chest and just said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Those are the two people, those are the two prayers. And Jesus says, who do you think went home that day right with God, justified? And Jesus says it was the tax collector, it was the second one. And, and here's, here's why I'm saying all this. Here's what I want us to see, okay? In Jesus' model prayer, the Lord's prayer, right? The climax and the ending of the entire thing is a plea for God to forgive us for our sins. And it's a plea actually for protect us from temptation and evil. And David, who's this man after God's own heart, he has failed more, hopefully, than anyone else in this room will ever fail. And then when Jesus shows us in this parable like a picture of the kind of person who's right with God, he actually gives you a portrait of someone who's known in the community 
as a sinner and as a moral failure. And here's what all of this means. And here's what the end of the Lord's Prayer means. It means that the sin that you have in your past or the sin that you have in your future, that does not define you. The sin that you have in your past, the the tremendous failure that weighs on your head, and maybe you've never even told anyone in Salt Company what you've done or what you've walked through in your life because you're so ashamed of it. What this means is that that doesn't define you. And in the exact same way, the sin that's gonna happen in your future that you were like, I will never do something like that, that doesn't define you either. What actually defines you is what do you do with that? What do you do with your failure when it happens? That's what defines you. And if you're in the room tonight, you need to hear how unbelievably good the message of Jesus is. You need to know in the deepest part of your heart and your mind and your soul that there is nothing that you have done or nothing that you could possibly do that would ever push you away from the love and grace of God. It is an ocean that has no bottom. It is a sunrise that has no edges to it because of how good, because of how good and beautiful and valuable the life of Jesus is. It means that his death on the cross in your place can cover whatever debt you could possibly owe. That's what it means for the Son of God, the righteous one, the rich one, the holy one. That's what it means when he dies on the cross. It means whatever debt you owe, he can pay it. There's no fine he can't pay. There's no cost he can't cover. And this means that what matters, what defines our lives, isn't our sin, it isn't our failure, but it's what we do with it. What matters is whether Jesus has actually paid our debt or not. And this is what the end of the Lord's Prayer is about. It's this prayer that as we pray, it's meant to shape us into the kind of people who deal with our sin in a very specific kind of way a very specific kind of way that you could just define like this, just one word, repentance. Repentance. This is actually the whole point of the end of the Lord's prayer is is like as we pray it and as it works into our hearts, we become the kind of people that when we fail, we repent. And I wanna just say three things that I wanna show you guys, just that real repentance is, what is it? And what is it not that I think we see in this text? The first thing is this. Real repentance it sees sin, like when it thinks about sin, and if you're like, am I someone who actually repented? Well, real repentance sees sin as a debt that must be paid, right? This is the way that Jesus tells us to pray about our sin. I don't know if you caught this, but this is an, an interesting thing that Jesus does. He says, don't, when you pray to God about it, when you ask him to forgive you, don't call it sin, don't call it moral failure, call it debt. Why? Why does he do that? That's weird. Like, I don't think in connection groups we're like, guys, I've, I've gone into debt this week. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's like a weird way to start off a group, you know. Why does he do that? Why does he use the word debt to talk about sin? Well, it's because debt is something that has a price tag, right? Debt is something that has a specific price tag, right? We bought a house a little over a year ago and we took out a very large loan to buy it because, well, We don't have a lot of money. And so what that means is that we owe the bank a ton of cash. We owe a massive debt. And it isn't just like the bank can just like forgive us that debt and it won't be a big deal, right? It isn't like we're outside the bank and we like double parked in the parking lot 
And uh, you know, the head of the bank comes, the, uh, the you know, CEO comes out and he's like, oh no, this is bad. You double parked, but I forgive you, right? <laughs> You'd be like, hey, I really appreciate that. Like, that's actually a really nice thing to do to forgive me. But like, you don't feel that. It's not that big of a deal. Why? Because that forgiveness didn't cost him that much, right? It's fine. It's not that big of a deal. It's nice of him, but it isn't costly. But if the head of the bank comes out and he forgives your debt, like the mortgage that you owe, all the bills you're going to have after medical school, he just come out and go, hey, this is forgiven. They come out and wipe away literally hundreds of thousands of dollars. That can't just happen. Why? Well, because someone somewhere has to pay the price for that. And one of the very first marks of genuine repentance is that you don't see your sin as a rule you've broken, but you see it as a debt that needs to be paid. And guys, this is what's so stunning about actually praying like Jesus tells us to pray. This is what makes it so amazing what Jesus is saying to actually pray to God our Father. He says, Father, forgive us our debts. That's something that's so worked into like Christianity that we just say it and we say it and we think about it and we just, it just comes off our tongue. But do you realize what you're asking? Do you realize what it means to ask your Father in heaven to forgive you your debts? You aren't asking him to ignore something you've done. You aren't asking him to cover up something you've messed up on. You're asking him to pay the price of your debt. You're asking him to pay the cost for your sin and the wages of sin is death. That's what you're doing when you ask God to forgive you. Like those words carry so much weight. It's like as soon as they come out of your mouth, they slap the ground because of what they mean. To ask God to forgive us our debts. This is what the whole history of humankind has been doing since the Garden of Eden, right? We've been asking God to forgive us for our sins. And what we've really been doing in saying that is we have been asking for God to become a human being to make himself physical and material and tangible and touchable so that he could be hung up on a cross, so that he could have blood that would pour out of him so that he could die. Because that was the price of our sins. That was the cost of our debt. This is why sometimes you can ask God for forgiveness for your sin and be pretty unmoved by the words. But repentance, real repentance, it always comes with sorrow. Because when you're genuinely a repentant person, you know what you're really asking. You know the cost of the debt you're asking him to pay. Real repentance sees sin as a debt that must be paid. That's the very first thing we see. But the second thing is this, is that real repentance in this really interesting way, it doesn't just see sin as kind of an individual thing. It actually sees sin as like a group project. And I, I want you guys to just see what I mean by this, right? Like all of this prayer that Jesus is giving to us, you can't pray on your own, right? Like none of it is in the singular. All of it is in the plural. All of it is given to a community to pray, not just for yourself, but for the community, right? Look even just how it says it. It says this, 
Jesus says, pray like this, forgive us our debts. Like we've got some serious debts in this room, right? Not just me, not just you, but us. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Do you, do you pray like this? I feel like as I started to pray the Lord's Prayer and I started to like, kind of like, just honestly come to, come to Jesus and say, Jesus, teach me how to pray. And, and I'm trying to like pray this. I'm trying to get consistent with it. I feel like I'm consistently shocked by how like, whenever I pray this, it feels like this is teaching me something about prayer that I've just not done on my own. I just, I don't normally pray like this. And so I want, I want you guys to kind of enter into this with me. And here, here's, a, here's a question, okay? How can we pray this, this thing you just told us to pray? How can we pray this for the brothers and sisters who are closest to us if we don't actually know what temptations or sins they're facing, okay? Like, how can we do that, right? And I mean, like, get specific. Like, if we're really gonna be able to, like, pray this for the people around you, not just, like, those words, but, like, flesh them out. Like, man, I wanna pray for this and this, and, like, you really are praying this for the people around you. Well, the question is, what are the temptations that, Maybe some of the people you're sitting next to, or maybe like your best friend here, maybe people in your connection group. What are the temptations that they've been facing this week? Like try to answer that. Because if you're gonna go home tonight and pray this prayer for them, you need to know and answer that question. What are the temptations they've been facing this week? What is the evil that they need to be delivered from? And maybe, you know, when was the last time they experienced like a serious battle with temptation? Or maybe you need to know the answer, like what is one of the greatest sins in their past that actually still haunts their daily life? Do you, do you know the answers to these questions for the people that you live life with here in Salt Company? Or maybe another question is this, do, like if, do the people around you know the answers to those questions for you? And I, I don't mean this to be a convicting part of the sermon. I just, it's more like this invitation because one of the amazing things about having our debt paid by Jesus is that we can actually talk about it like we don't owe it anymore, right? Because we actually don't. Like Jesus actually has paid our debt on the cross. Like it's done, it's finished, right? But if you, you know, if you walk into a room, like one of the things you don't hear people doing a lot, just like, in passing is like talking about how much they owe on their house, right? It's like, they don't talk about that. Like you guys talk about that with your student loans because you like, it's like a bragging right? Like, oh, I'm gonna owe this much. But I'm telling you in like five years when you're like in the thick of paying that off, you're just gonna be like, I don't want people to know about this. I'm gonna like push this somewhere and quiet. I'm just gonna slowly pay it off for the next 30 years, right? Debt isn't something you wanna talk about. But if your debt has been paid by someone else and someone else just forgave it and wiped it clean, you would talk about that all the time. It would be like the most freeing thing to just talk about this debt because it has already been paid. And it isn't that we would like brag about our sin, right? That's not what this is. They're like, oh, well, you should brag about it. Like, well, I'll tell you what I did in high school and God forgave that, right? That's not what it, that's not what it is. But it's just this understanding that like your sin, your debt has actually been paid off finished you don't owe it anymore and when we talk about it we aren't talking about something that defines us anymore but we're talking about something that's already been dealt with right that this is confession right that's what confession is like it isn't just that we confess our sins to God and yes we do that but when you 
confess your sins to God, you have this radical freedom to actually walk into your connection group or into your community and be this like completely authentic whole person that's just like the real you. Like you're free to be the actual real you, right? This is confession. This is like walking in a connection group before anyone can like derail the conversation by like, oh my gosh, did you see the game on ESPN? Or like, did you see The Bachelor last night? It was incredible. Like right before all that, you're like, hey, let's talk about this. And you just drop a bomb and you start talking about how you weren't watching ESPN last night because you went out to the bars and you drank way too much. And you start talking about your sin. You start talking about how this girl that you had started texting and you kind of mentioned it in group. You actually started texting her a little bit too much way late last night. You ended up hooking up and you just start spilling your sin, your debt, your failure. You start spilling it in group and you just talk about it. One of the marks of real repentance is that you don't just confess your sins to God but you actually view your sin as so completely paid for that you can talk about it with the rest of those who've also had their debts paid off by the blood of Jesus as well. And this doesn't mean that like what Christians do is like you tell everyone about all of your sin all the time, okay? Like don't do that. Like that would, that would actually be really awkward, okay? Like don't, there's a time and place for that, okay? So don't do that. But here's what I'm saying. When you've had your sins forgiven by God, one of the things that starts to happen, when you've actually repented and you've felt forgiveness, one of the things that starts to happen is you begin to live in this unbelievably peace-filled freedom. To be able to be honest with who you really are. And one of the things that starts to happen is you start to like take off that mask that you're always wearing in salt, you're always wearing in a connection group. You start to just, take it off and, and this kind of, this image of you that you're trying so hard to keep up and present to the people around you, just slowly you can kind of just start taking that off and just being like the just totally honest, transparent version of you that's just the real you. You start to become a radically authentic person. You know, I don't think there's anything more exhausting in life than to be in a community of people you're trying to get close to and like trying to convince the people around you that you're actually a little more put together than you really are. That is exhausting. It's a lot of work. And one of the things that's so awesome is like when Jesus is calling people to follow him, he's like, hey, if you're weary and like heavy laden, like you're exhausted, come follow me and I will give you rest. And this is one of the ways that Jesus is trying to give us rest. Have you ever let the people around you know who you really are? I mean, like, I mean, really, like the deep down, deep, dark secrets of you. Have you ever let them in and just been totally transparent and totally honest? One of the marks of real repentance is that you start to feel this freedom to be able to do that. Because you know that those things, they don't define you anymore, but they're debts that have been paid when you have had all your sins paid for by the blood of Jesus, you can finally do this. I invite you to do that. Like I invite every single one of you to bring all of your sin, all of your debt, all of your failure into the light of this community because you know what? The cross of Jesus Christ, it can handle it. It is strong enough to bear the weight of it. And you know what? You're not gonna surprise anyone. You know why? Because we're all just like you. 
We all have sin. We all have failure. And all of us have the exact same Savior and the exact same way of being made righteous, not on our own, but by the blood of Jesus Christ. And when you reveal your sin to a community of people who are also sinful and also have a great Savior, what happens is your sin, your confession, you're just being totally transparent and honest, that doesn't actually condemn you from the community. That doesn't actually separate you from the community. That actually qualifies you to be part of the community. Because there's no perfect people here. There's no people who don't need healing here. There's only broken, sinful people here. But that's sin that's already happened, right? That's sin in the past. Here's a question. What about sin in the future? And this is what's so cool because living a life of repentance, it doesn't just involve past sins, but it actually changes the way you view your future sins as well. He says, lead us not into temptation. It's like a future thing. It isn't just God forgive us for what's happened in the past. He's saying, no, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. One of the things that has changed the way I fight my sin more than just about anything else in the world has been this, this goal, this fight in my heart to become the kind of person that confesses my sin before it happens. Before it happens. Like it's an awesome thing. And you guys, you guys have your accountability groups and they're sweet and we sit in new leader interviews and we're like, hey, are you confessing your sin? Are you talking about the real you? And, and I think the normal thing is to be like this. You, you experience temptation and the evil's like knocking at your door and you're like trying to fight and do your best to like follow Jesus. And sometimes you blow it. And then you walk into group and you're like, oh, I'm supposed to talk about this because I'm not supposed to be radically authentic and I'm supposed to confess my sin. So guys, I blew it. Like I did this thing again. Or you walk into group and you're like, ah, like I said I wasn't gonna text this guy and I did and, and I just, I messed up. And that's confession. That's awesome. But Jesus is saying, actually, you can be more authentic than that. You can actually confess your temptation when it happens. The greatest thing I've ever figured out of how to fight sin is to stop confessing my sin after it happens but start confessing it before it happens. And this changes so much, right? Listen, it isn't sinful to experience temptation. I think that's one of the greatest things that the devil wants you to think is that when temptation comes your way, you feel shame and you feel condemnation, not because you've sinned, but because you're tempted to sin. And you know what's amazing? Jesus was tempted in every single possible way that you will be tempted in your life. Yet he never sinned. You know what that means? It means that temptation isn't sin. When Satan entices you and lures you to do something, there's no guilt, there is no shame, there is nothing in that that you should be ashamed of. Why? Because Jesus Christ experienced the exact same thing that you're experiencing in that moment. And so you know what things I think will change Salt Company? Is if we stop hiding our temptation from each other and we just start being radically authentic with the things that we're tempted to do and the desires we have in our heart we're trying not to follow, right? You might be someone in the room and you're like, I am like, the whole sexuality talk, that was like huge for you. And you're like trying to figure out like, can I talk about this temptation I have for like same-sex attraction? I'm saying, yes, you can. And you should. Or you might be someone in the room and you're a girl in here and you're like, man, I struggle with viewing pornography and I feel like this is something the only guys struggle with and I can't be authentic with this and honest with this. I'm saying, yes, you can. You know why? Because struggling with temptation, that's not sin. 
And you can put that out in the light and say, would you help me fight this? I'm feeling this temptation. And you know what's gonna happen when you start doing that? Your life is gonna start to change in pretty amazing ways. Because you know when you lose the fight against sin, it's almost always when you're alone, right? It's like you're Uriah the Hittite. All the army pulls back and you're just out there all alone by yourself trying to fight sin. You know what happens? You die. You know what happens? When you're about to face temptation, you're gonna go toe to toe with the devil and all of a sudden you link arms with brothers and sisters who also have the spirit of God, also have the sword of the spirit, also have the shield of faith. They are armed up and ready to go right next to you. You know what happens? You find yourself winning a little more often. I think that if Salt Company starts doing this, we start being so so free from our sins, so free to be honest with who we really are and the temptations we face that we just start talking about it openly as a group and in our communities. And when you struggle with something, there's this temptation. You just send out a text and say, hey, I'm about to do this thing. Pray I don't do the thing. And you send it out. And then people text you back and they go, don't do the thing. Like, I'm praying for you. Like, come over to my house. Like, they're texting you scripture. They're on your side, arm in arm, praying for you. And they're praying this prayer. They're saying, God, lead him out of that temptation. Deliver this person from this really specific evil they're tempted in in this moment. And those kind of prayers will change your life. And they'll change what it looks like for you to fight sin. I'm so far away from my notes, I don't even know where I'm at right now, but all right, what time is it? All right, we're good. Okay, Here, here's what I think will happen, okay? And I, I mean this, I really mean this. I think that for some of you guys that have been facing sin and you've been failing at fighting sin for a long time, I genuinely believe that this is one of the things that will change your life. I really believe that. Like that tonight, moving forward tonight, you say, I'm gonna actually start being so I so believe that this sin doesn't define me. I so believe that Jesus has paid this debt that I'm actually gonna start confessing radically when I have sinned and start radically confessing when I'm about to sin. And I think if you actually do that, you can start to live this kind of life where you find victory over your sin. And I seriously mean that it can start tonight. Like it can start tonight. What's so awesome is you don't have to live in that sin. Jesus put his spirit in you and he's put you in this community of brothers and sisters and he tells us to pray this way. Lead us out of temptation. Deliver us from evil. I think that when a community of people starts to do that, two things will happen. Okay, I think that one, I think that community that takes this seriously and starts doing this will become more unified than maybe just about any community on earth. I think we will experience a kind of unity and fellowship and camaraderie that few people ever have the privilege of experiencing on this earth. And the second thing I think will happen is that the sins that have marked this community for years and years, I think those will start to die. And they'll start to be replaced by holiness and love and goodness and faith. And all of the kinds of things that we so desperately want to mark our lives but somehow just can't figure out how to get there. I have a friend who has texted me almost every single day, multiple times a day, for years, years. And you know what his texts say? Hey, pray for me. I'm experiencing temptation. Sometimes it's specific, sometimes it's abstract. Always texting me. I can show you, it just the thread goes on and on and on and on and on and on and on. Almost every single day, he texts me. He asks me for prayers. He asks me, he, he confesses the temptation he's going through. 
you know what? He is one of the most godly and holy men that I know. He rarely ever falls into sin. Real repentance sees sin as a community project. And that the third point is this. Real repentance, it sees God as the one we've ultimately sinned against. All right, this, this whole point is kind of muddled, but I hope to, hope to say something helpful. Here's what I'm trying to say, okay. Who were we praying to in this prayer? Who? Our Father, right? That's who we're praying to. That's who we're asking for forgiveness from. Um, one of the things I've heard more and more lately um, in Salt Company, just talking with people, is this idea that it's important for God to forgive us. Like, that's super important. We get that, we know that. But if we really want to be able to move forward, if we really want to be able to grow into who we're supposed to be, we need to be able to forgive ourselves, right? You guys have heard that, right? Like, yes, you need God to forgive you, but ultimately you have to forgive yourself or you're going to live this kind of joyless life. And we know people that have stories like this, right? They knew God had forgiven them. They knew their father in heaven had wiped away their sins and paid their debt, but they were never able to experience full and complete joy until they finally were able to forgive themselves. Um, I, I wanna just be careful. I, I know that some of you in the room, like this is part of your story, okay? And I wanna tread lightly here. But I also want you to hear what I'm saying. There's not one single example in the entire Bible of someone ever forgiving themselves. Not even like abstractly. It's just not a concept the Bible has at all. Do you know why? It's because this way of thinking is actually the exact opposite of real repentance. It's the exact opposite of real repentance. You wanna know what real repentance looks like? David, after he's failed unbelievably, he writes Psalm 51. And I wanna read the beginning of it for you. This is what it says. David cries out to God and he says, have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. He says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions. I know them. My sin is always before me. And he says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. It goes on and you can read it and you should. But this last line, you have to understand what he's saying. He says, as he's experiencing his sin, he's had this unbelievable failure. His conclusion is, I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin did my mother conceive me. What is David saying? He's saying this. He's saying this thing, this murder, this sexual assault, this deceit, this evil, this is actually who I have always been. He's saying this is exactly in line with my character. He's saying I did this not because I messed up, not because I slipped up, not because I fell into sin. No, I did this because this is who I am. That's what he means. It's like from the very time I came out of my mother's womb, I was actually this kind of person. And, and me murdering this person isn't some like new, radically new departure from my actual life. No, this is just me. I am a murderer. I am a sinner. This is something that the self-help gospel, it won't let you say. It will never let you go there. 
right? The self-help gospel says that you need to forgive yourself because you really are better than the sin you're struggling with. You really aren't as bad as the sin. This sin doesn't define you because it's not, an accurate, it's not an accurate portrayal of who you really are. But the gospel of Jesus Christ, it actually says the exact opposite of this. The reason that David, King David, is a man after God's own heart is because when he sins and when he fails, he responds in the most humble, contrite way possible. And he doesn't blame shift and say, well, man, it's just really hard. You know, like I'm a king and I've got this power and I just, I'm just, I'm abusing it, but man, it's just, it's not fair to be in this position. He doesn't kind of blame shift, doesn't say anything about his parents. No, he says, no, this is who I really am. This is who I've always been. You can't forgive yourself when you receive the gospel of Jesus Christ because it wasn't your standard that you broke. No, when you sinned, you were actually living exactly in line with your standard. You are a sinner. You were conceived in sin. You've been a sinner your whole life. And if you wanna have real repentance, that's one of the first places it starts. No blame shifting. No kind of justifying, no making, no minimizing your sin. But just being the kind of person that says, you know what, the reason that I look at pornography is because I like it. It's one of the things that changed in my life years ago. Like I was trying to talk about that, like, ah, oh, yeah, I, I hate this, I hate, I don't like this. This isn't, this isn't me, I just do this thing and I need to stop. It's like, no, that's me. Or like the reason that we gossip is actually because we like gossiping. We like slandering other people. It's just who we are. You aren't failing your standard. That is your standard. The reason you look down at others isn't because you failed to be humble in the moment. It's because you are self-righteous. And this is like rock bottom, right? This is like the worst place you could possibly be. Like to not just have failure, but to then get to a point where you go, holy crap, like that failure, it is me. It's the truest expression of who I am. And what's amazing is this is exactly where Jesus meets us. It is exactly in this moment where we realize the unrelenting love of God. When you realize that the failure, the debt that you are staring in the face, it isn't something that's happened to you. It isn't something that is a result of your upbringing or your circumstances, it is a result of you. And what's so painful and what's so uh, just hurts about honestly praying the Lord's Prayer over and over again is it actually gets you to that place all the time. I don't know if you've experienced this, but I think that as you keep praying this, it'll happen, right? As you pray to God as your Father, you're actually reminded about all the ways you've cast him off that week and lived as an orphan. As you pray that God's name would be made holy, you're immediately made aware of all the ways that you're living for your own holiness and your own glory and your own name. And as you pray for God's kingdom to come, you're confronted with this reality that you're praying that after a week where you spent your whole time building your own kingdom and you pray for daily bread after spending so much of your time going after anything but God to satisfy the longings of your heart. And when you finally get to the end of the prayer, you find that there's one thing you need and it's just forgiveness. It's just forgiveness. If you're in the room and you have debt, the most amazing thing in the world is that that's what Jesus Christ came to do. 
He came to swallow it up completely. He came to bury it in the ground. He came to finish it, pay it totally and fully. And I just want to invite all of us at the very end of the year, just once again, to come to the foot of the cross, carrying nothing but all of our debt, all of our sin, all of our failure, and just to release it at the foot of Jesus' feet. And say, Jesus, would you pay this? Would you pay the price of this? Every single time you pray that, Jesus says yes. And as you pray that, you become this kind of person that's so stripped of entitlements that when other people wrong you, it's just so easy to say, yeah, I forgive you. I've been forgiven so much, I forgive that. Would we become the kind of people that at the end of every single prayer, the thing we always come back to is that simple, simple thing, Jesus, forgive us, pay our debts, and would we be people that stand unbelievably grateful and raise our hands in worship because every time we ask him that, he does. Let's pray. Jesus, there's so many debts in this room. And Jesus, if all of our failures and all of our sins were thrown up on the screen for everyone to see, it would be um, so humbling and terrifying and overwhelming. And but Jesus, you have paid our debt. You have washed us clean. You have made us new. We are no longer sinners, but we are saints because of what you have done. And so Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the lamb of God that was slain for the sins of the world. Thanks for teaching us how to pray. Thanks for giving us access to a father that always hears us. Jesus, thanks that you're not like our earthly father, but you're our father in heaven who has perfect, unfailing love for us. Jesus, thanks that your name is holy and glorious and it's actually something worth giving our entire lives to living for. God, it doesn't fade, it doesn't fail, it doesn't grow old, but it's just the one thing in life that we can stake our claim and our purpose on and it lasts forever, just the glorious name that you've put on our foreheads in Revelation. Jesus, we just pray that your kingdom would come to Iowa City as it is in heaven. We pray that your will would be done in our lives. We let go of our dreams once again. We let go of our plans once again and we just lay them at your feet and we say bring your kingdom bring your will into our lives Jesus would you give us our daily bread satisfy us in ways that nothing this world can do God would you remind us of your word the ways that you satisfy us with the Bible the story that you've given us but Jesus also just meet our real physical needs and Jesus Forgive us our sins. Make us the kind of people that so experience forgiveness and are so genuinely repentant that for someone else to wrong us, it's just like nothing. Like we owe 10 million bucks and we, this person owes us a dollar. Who are we to not just freely forgive? And God, as we leave this place, just for a, a summer, I just pray that you would 
Lead us not into temptation, but God, you deliver us from evil. And we become the kind of community that doesn't just play together, that prays together. Grow us deep into the gospel as we pray this prayer as a community and help us worship you tonight because you deserve it and you are worthy. In your name, amen.